Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking demographics. Most projections in the commodity world assume growth in population, or at least that growth in population going out into the far future. Our guest today argues that population is going to peak much earlier than predicted, and in fact, the decline is going to be much steeper. What does that mean for economies? What does that mean for the commodities sector? In particular, what does it mean for the ag sector? Our guest is Todd Thurman. He's an international swine management consultant and also an agricultural futurist who spent a long time deep diving into the world of demography and what it means for us and the commodities sector. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on, or just spread the word amongst your colleagues. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Todd, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So we're talking today about demographics, obviously tying it into what that means for the commodity markets more broadly, but in particular the ag markets. But I, I guess also an astonishing tale to tell about the future of demographics globally, the global population, as you see it over your deep investigation over the last few years. Perhaps we can just sort of get everyone on the same page at the moment. What is the, the global population today and kind of what are the rough forecasts given by the UN, etc., about where they're heading? Yeah, so right now, uh, globally, we're at right about uh, 8 billion people. The UN decided uh, sometime back in uh, November of last year that we tipped over uh, 8 billion people. So we're right about 8 billion. The current projections for the UN, um, what they call the medium variant, which is what they consider to be the most likely outcome. And I'm sure we'll talk about it. Not everyone agrees, including me. Um, But if you follow their uh, estimates in terms of where they expect the global population to peak, it would be at about 10.4 billion people in about 2086. Now, there's a lot of uh, demographers that believe that's going to happen much sooner for reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about. And a lot of those folks would say it's going to be a lot earlier sometime around uh, mid-century to maybe 2060 with a population peak of around 9 billion. So uh, we're looking at a range of, say, between 9 and 10.4 billion and a peak somewhere between, say, 2050 and 2086. Okay. And then let's also get some definition around, we're going to talk fertility rates. Can you tell us what they are and give us some understanding of of what 2 means or 1.1 or whatever it might be? Yeah, so there's three primary drivers, I guess, technical drivers of population change, and that would be birth rate, which is normally measured in terms of fertility rate, and most commonly total fertility rate. So you'll see TFR. And TFR is is the average number of children per woman per lifetime. And so the replacement rate is generally considered to be 2.1. So that's uh, two, obviously, to replace the woman and her partner. And then the point one is to account for the thankfully small number of uh, children now that don't survive into their reproductive years. So anything below 2.1 would be considered a fundamentally declining population. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that population begins declining immediately. And we'll talk a little more about that. 
I'm sure as well. And then anything above 2.1 would be considered a, a growing population. And then if you were right around 2.1, you would have a stable population moving forward. We currently globally are at about 2.3, so slightly above replacement rate. But we have very big differences depending on different countries around the world. So I believe the lowest fertility rate currently is South Korea. And they are below, I think they're around 0.8. And then we have some that are still relatively high, in, in mostly in Africa, that are 4 and in some cases 5 or slightly higher. But on average, we're right about 2.3 and we've been declining pretty steadily for the last 75 years. Okay, we're going to come on to the economic consequences of all this because obviously much of how we capture, how we view our economies, much of how they're structured in terms of supporting the elderly and so forth are based on growing population numbers. And then we're going to apply that to commodities itself and what it means and that perhaps organizations are discounting the rapid decline in population and what it means for their businesses. But let's let's look at the world then at the moment. We're not seeing the replacement rate. In many European countries, in China, can you just, I guess, give us a global overview of how uh, fertility rates are declining, and then we can understand a bit more about why that's happening? Yeah, so they're declining pretty much everywhere. It's very difficult to find a, a country that is an exception to that. Um, but in general, where we're at is in Africa, we still have very high replacement rates, uh, four, five, uh, so those, it's not unusual um, in Africa. Parts of the Middle East are fairly high as well. And then once you get outside of the Middle East and Africa, uh, there's a very good chance that you live in a country that is already below replacement rate. Virtually the rest of the world is below replacement rate. That is the most acute in East Asia and in Europe. It's been a more recent development in East Asia compared to Europe. Europe has been sort of steadily declining for several decades now. The situation in East Asia is more acute in the sense that it's happened much quicker and those fertility rates are, are much lower than what we see in Europe. So in Europe, you would uh, and again, there's some regional differences with, within Europe for sure, but you're going to see, uh, if you just throw a dartboard at Europe and look at fertility rates, you're going to see fertility rates in that 1.4 to 1.8 range for most of those. If you throw a dart at East Asia, there's a good chance that you're going to be much closer to one. So you have South Korea that we've already mentioned that is, uh, you know, around 0.8. And China, the last numbers we got out of China that I think were reasonably accurate, have them at like 1.1, 1.2. So some very low fertility rates uh, resulting in population that's going to be declining fairly rapidly. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I talk about with a, a lot of folks is that this is not just an issue that's going to be happening in the future. It's an issue for a lot of people in the world that's happening right now. So 25% of the world's population already lives in a country whose population is declining. Right. So 25%, we're going to have another big chunk that are going to be joining them in the next 10 or 15 years. So for those folks in East Asia and parts of Europe, uh, it's definitely not just an issue that's going to be happening in the future. It's an issue that's happening to them right now. Can you give us some sense of, I assume it's not sort of just a linear outcome right so if you, you know you're at two it's is the same at being at kind of well it's it's a, just a whatever percentage step down it would be at 1.8 or whatever i mean I, I, I just help us understand like the difference between being 
you know, at replacement rate to being at one, how quickly can that change the number of people in the country? Yeah, it can make a pretty big difference. So, uh, you know, these numbers, these differences sound relatively small if you think about, you know, 1.5 versus where South Korea's at at 0.8. It doesn't seem like that much of a difference, but it's a very significant difference. So just to give you a rough idea, at 0.8 replacement rate where South Korea's at, you're looking at every generation being about one-third smaller. So it can have a really dramatic impact. And so even as we start to think about you know, a lot of times we talk about just below replacement rate and above replacement rate, but how far above and how far below you are still makes a, a, a real difference. And there's a there's a concept called demographic momentum that historically was always kind of discussed in the context of a rapidly growing population. But the concept certainly applies on the other side as well. And that's the idea that you have a certain amount of momentum. So as fertility rate changes, whether it's going up or going down, there's a delay in that impact, right? And so what we're talking about is overall, when we're talking about fertility rate, we're really talking about not just how many babies each woman is having, but how many women are having those babies, right? And so if you have a relatively high fertility rate that goes lower, there's a delay in that impact, right? You don't see it right away because you still have a lot of women having relatively fewer babies, when you start to see the real impact that is, you know, a generation or so delayed, so a couple of decades delayed, is when you see fewer women having fewer babies. And that's really where it starts to become obvious. And obviously it works the other way as well. So as you get the replacement rates below or fertility rates below replacement rate, you see a delay in that population decline as well. And that's pretty much where we're at in a big part of the world right now. We're in that delay where we're not seeing quite yet seeing the impact. The other thing that can sort of mask those changes and kind of delay the impact is longer life expectancies. So if your mortality rate goes down at the same time your fertility rate is going down, that will mask the impact in terms of the population. So some of those fewer babies are offset by people living longer. But we're starting to see that start to level out as well on the mortality side. And then the last thing that you can see that can really mask the situation, uh, which is going to be a major issue for the U.S. and a few other countries around the world, is immigration. So we can see with a declining fertility rate, even if your fertility rate is significantly below replacement rate, if you have a significant amount of inbound immigration, it can offset some of that. And so you don't necessarily see the impact right away in terms of population. But both of those masks that I referred to are temporary. Eventually, it always catches up. And so that's not really a long-term solution. It's just buying you some time. Yeah, and like this leads up to this argument of a sort of a cliff effect, and we can see a rapid declines just in the in the total amount of population globally. Just can you give us a quick on the causes side, what's behind this? Can you give us a quick scan of what is believed to be the major drivers of these lower fertility rates? Yeah, so there's there's really three drivers as we technical drivers as we think about population change. And I think it's it's useful to kind of get a little bit of an understanding of what those technical drivers are. And and those are birth rate, again, like we've discussed, uh, usually measured in total fertility rate. Mortality rate, which is, can be measured a few different ways. The most common 
metric we see is either the mean age or even more commonly the average life expectancy. So that's how long are people living and then immigration, which I alluded to. And so obviously at the global level, that's not an issue yet, at least not until Elon gets his first group uh, to relocate to Mars. But it certainly <laughs> is a major impact as we think about it, at, you know, more of the regional country level and even within countries. And so there's a few, I think, misconceptions that it would be really helpful for people to be aware of. They're very common misconceptions. If you're not thinking about these issues every day, you kind of miss some of the subtleties. And so there's really one for each of those. And that is on fertility rate. I think one of the big misconceptions is we think about smaller family size and we think about you know, couples deciding to have two kids instead of three kids or three kids instead of four kids. And that's certainly part of it. But the biggest impact, as we've seen with some of the recent work that Stephen Shaw has done, has shown that really the major impact is the rate of childlessness. So it's not so much people having, you know, three, two kids instead of three kids. It's really people having the percentage of people that are having no kids. So once you do decide to have the first child, the rates at which you decide to have the second and third are slightly lower than they have been historically, but not a lot, not really a, enough to make a huge impact. And so we see the biggest impact is the rate of childlessness overall. So people that have no children and, and then certainly we see, a uh, significant reduction outside of a few religious communities in very large families. So that's that's certainly part of it as well. But I think it's very normal for people to think of the issue being, you know, a, a minor adjustment and going from three to two or four to three or two to one. But in reality, the biggest driver behind that is, is people not having children at all. Similarly, on the mortality side, I think there's this misconception that this trend towards longer lifespans has been driven by granny living to be 72 instead of 70, right? And that's certainly a factor, but by far over the last 75 years, the primary driver behind that has been a massive reduction in infant and childhood mortality. And so if we go back to 1950, globally, almost 25% of all live-born children died before their fifth birthday. So almost, so a quarter, basically a quarter died before their fifth birthday. Now, thankfully, due to advances in medicine and, and nutrition and all those things, we've gotten that number way down to where it's below 4% globally now. And in developed countries, it's, it's a statistical anomaly almost below 1%. And so, you know, that's obviously that's great news, but I think it's important to understand that this dramatic increase that we've seen in terms of life expectancy globally has really been driven by not by old people getting even older it's been driven primarily by a reduction in infant and childhood mortality so if granny lives to be 72 instead of 70 it doesn't really have much of an impact on the average but if a child that would have you know in, in 75 years ago been fairly likely for them to have passed away at two lives to be 72 then obviously that makes a really big impact on the average so that's an important thing to consider because as we continue to move forward we would expect that life expectancy rate of improvement to slow down because we've already captured a lot of that uh, quote-unquote easy gain and then in immigration i think the the biggest misconception is the the significance of the impact that it's going to have. And I think the, the U.S. is a perfect example of that. If you just took away all projected immigration 
from the U.S. So from here forward, there's no more immigration. The U.S. population would peak around 2037 and begin to decline from there. Uh, so that's only really a very short period of time away. Because of immigration, almost exclusively, because we are already significantly below replacement rate, we're, continue, we're expected, the U.S. and a handful of other countries around the world are expected to continue to grow beyond 2100 due almost exclusively to immigration. So, that, I mean, that's a, that's a major, major impact. Mm. And then the, the root causes, as we discussed you know, prior to this, obviously, is education, secularization, and urbanization, and then a bit of a wild card, which is potentially increasing medical infertility as a result of you know, whatever it might be in our environment that we're producing. Which of those is the, the most impactful? And, and can you tie this in? Because, you know, A, they're not things that we want to roll back, right? These aren't, you know, when, when we're thinking about in the future a declining population, the, the solutions that, you know, are, are sort of essentially unpalatable. And in fact, where countries have tried to in place pronatal policies, all of them have essentially failed. Can you give us that, that narrative? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand that that when we're talking about those technical drivers, those are those are things that we can measure, and if we get our variables correct, then we know what the impact's going to be. So, if we get those a relatively small number of variables correct, we can be quite accurate in predicting what's going to happen in the future. When we start talking about these, you know, underlying socioeconomic drivers, uh, we have to be a little bit more careful there because we're we're really talking about correlation, not necessarily causation. So we're observing that these trends are happening and correlating, uh, you know, with each other, but not necessarily causative. Now we can draw some really reasonable logical conclusions based on that, but we don't know for sure that those are our actual drivers. But we we think uh, we're very confident that probably the biggest driver there, certainly uh, urbanization has been a significant driver. You know, as people move into the cities, they live in smaller spaces. Uh, it just makes sense that they would tend to have smaller families. But I, I think by far the biggest impact is educational and career opportunities for everyone, but particularly for women. And so what we've seen is a very strong trend globally and almost most of the world towards greater economic opportunities, you know, educational and career opportunities for women. And when those opportunities present themselves, women tend to, especially when they're younger, tend to de-emphasize family making and are more focused on building their educational opportunities and building their careers. And so what happens there fairly obviously is that tends to delay uh, the first birth and in some cases, people miss that window altogether. And so when we delay that first birth, it has a major impact on, on family size. It has a major impact on whether or not you have children at all. And it also has an impact on the, the number of children that you have. So when you start your family at 35 instead of 25, obviously that window of opportunity is much smaller and has a pretty significant impact. And so as you alluded to, it's one of the real vexing challenges as we think about you know, whether you think that population decline is a good thing or a bad thing or a, or a neutral thing, um, it certainly is very difficult, difficult to come up with, like you said, you know, palatable ways to address this because we're really supportive of, I think everybody or just about everybody are supportive of those drivers. I mean, I certainly am. I have two daughters myself and I want to make sure that they have 
all the educational and career opportunities that can be made available to them. But at the same time, it's it's resulting in this sort of, you know, again, some people would say negative, some people would say positive, but it's certainly a very impactful trend towards smaller families and, and population decline. And so that's it's a, it's a real challenge when you start thinking about solutions. A lot of times, the first of all, the solutions don't tend to be particularly effective, and the policies that might be effective are, like you said, very, very unpalatable and certainly unpopular, and I don't think anybody really wants to go down that path. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Okay, so let's let's frame up why this... I mean, I think people sitting myself when we start having these discussions you can certainly see it as a positive in the context of sustainability the energy transition you know all of our, our particular footprints on the planet and so forth but can you just you know before we sort of get there and why it could it will be a challenge certainly in the commodities world can you give us your sense on how potentially off those UN projections might be or the medium point like how where could we be in real numbers in 50 years and 100 years i mean how 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 rapid and how impactful is this population drop that we're talking about given all you said above yeah it, it's going to be pretty significant i mean we're going to see right now the un projections the using the the medium variant the most popular uh, un projections uh china's expected to lose more than half of their population between now and 2100 and uh, you know that's you know 75 80 years but a relatively short period of time so we're expecting in some countries to see a dramatic uh, decline many people think that would be even more significant than that they could use, lose you know 60 to 65% of their population by 2100 and they're going to see a pretty significant decline just in the next 30 years or so by 2050 i think they're probably going to end up losing 10 to 12% of their population and when you know it's previously the biggest uh, country in the world in terms of population that obviously has an outsized impact globally. So, you know, where we're going to be, again, I think I mentioned earlier, the UN median estimates have the population peaking at about 10.4 billion in 2086. There's a lot of folks that think it's going to be much lower than that. And so I think the consensus among that the, sort of the naysayer group uh, will be that we're going to peak somewhere around 9 billion at somewhere between, say, 2050 and 2060. So that's obviously a, a pretty big difference, but it doesn't take very big changes in the fertility numbers to really get there. And so the two main areas where there's a big amount of disagreement is in China, where the UN is sort of predicting a rebound that just looks very unlikely to just about anybody that's looking at it critically, in my opinion. and They've failed to account for some recent revelations that have come out since the last revision. So it'll be very interesting to see how they handle that. Uh, the most recent revision had the UN had China peaking uh, their population in the early 
2030s, I believe. And so as we know, China's even admitted that they had a decline in the population last year. So that's much further ahead of schedule. So China's a big part of that disagreement. And then the other big disagreement is in Africa. And the disagreement is how quickly is that fertility rate going to decline over time. So, you know, what's going to be the impact from an economic standpoint and how is that going to be reflected in changes in the fertility rate? And the UN thinks that that fertility rate is going to stay relatively high for a pretty good long time. And some others, including me, think that there's some reasons to believe that that could decline quite a bit quicker. So that sounds a little bit pessimistic, but it's actually optimistic in terms of the the economic opportunities that we are perceiving for Africa. So if Africa does well economically or does better than than a lot of people think economically, that is almost certainly going to have an impact of of expediting that decline in fertility rate and that can have a massive impact on the global population projections because 95% of the net population difference that the UN expects between now and 2100 is expected to come from sub-Saharan Africa alone. So if they are getting Africa even a little bit wrong, their numbers could be way off, and that's where a lot of this comes from. And one final question while we're talking numbers here. Where does it sort of the global population end up when we're at a sort of a new normal, if you'd like, in the future? What what time frame is that? And, you know, is it two, three billion? What does that look like? Well, the it's an interesting question, and, and the, the answer is nobody really knows. And But it, but it's really interesting to th- because when we go back to the 60s, and, of course, it was a much different time, there was a huge amount of concern about how rapidly the population was growing at the time, and a lot of people are kind of stuck in that that mold now. And I, I think that's part of what I'm trying to do out there is is let people know that, that those trends are slowing and are, are going to be reversing soon. But certainly it's understandable based on the rapid population that growth that we saw between, you know, 1800 and the, the turn of the 21st century for people to be very concerned about what was going on there. But what we have seen is that that you know trend has has slowed down significantly and the impact has been aging population and population growth rate that's that's slowing and and will soon be declining and so that's sort of the transition that i think a, a lot of people missed because the narrative really didn't change during that time even though the the conditions have changed significantly yeah yeah and and any sense though like you know is this is this will we see the earth go to one billion i mean i know this is is very far out projections but just i guess to give us some sense how significant could the decline be right so so we don't really have projections much beyond 2100 uh, that's sort of kind of the edge of uh, the, the problem when you go beyond that is that you have any mistakes that you've made or, or yeah. estimates that were poor kind of compound on one another but I think what is an important factor to consider there is that the previously, back in the 60s, the the projections were really that we were going to get to about replacement rate and we're going to sort of just kind of maintain. Um, I don't really, in hindsight, I'm not sure why we necessarily assumed that, but it seemed to be, I mean, really nobody questioned it, right? That we were going to kind of decline down to around 2.1 and we would stay around 2.1 and then our population would sort of stabilize. And we certainly have not seen that happen. We've gotten to the replacement rate and continued to crash through, um, certainly at the 
country and regional level and and will very soon be dipping below that 2.1 globally and so that that certainly didn't happen as we start looking beyond then the big question now in fact we added a, a stage to the demographic transition model there used to be four stages and now it's five and stage five is decline and some people are already beginning to ask the question of what does stage six look like you know is that a is that a, a restabilization at a lower level? You know, what does that look like? And I don't think anybody really knows. I think there's a reasonable case to be made that that we decline for a significant period of time, and then maybe the population stabilizes. But um, you know, as as often happens, my uh, my 12 year old asked a question one time that. You know, she was looking at some of the work that I was doing, and she said, well, how long would it take for us to become extinct, right? And the answer is it would take a very long time, but uh, that's, you know, barring any advancements in, uh, you know, mass-scale cloning technology, uh, that's uh, really appears to be where we're headed if we don't have a uh, reversal in some of these trends. And so I think, you know, once we get out around, you know, beyond 2100, It'll be really interesting to see what happens, but I think there's a there's a reasonable case to be made for uh, a very wide range. If you looked out at 2,200 or 2,300 and tried to project the population, there's a there's a range there that I think from you know two to eight billion, which is a, an enormous enormous range, and I think a reasonable case to be made for, could be made for almost anything in between. Yeah, well let's let's focus on the next twenty years and let's talk about what this actually means you know today and in the you know the, the span of the energy transition for example why is this a problem and maybe we can talk at sort of the macroeconomic scale entitlement programs briefly and then we can dig into commodities and i know where you came at this from which is really around the agri piece but what why why is this concerning to to anyone sat on a board today and and perhaps the argument is not taking this into account well the the concern is is not that it's going to happen overnight these things tend to happen relatively slowly and so we're going to have plenty of time to kind of uh, observe the impact here the the problem is is that the the scale of the changes that i think are going to be necessary in order to make these adjustments are also massive right so it becomes very important to try to get out ahead of this issue and begin having these discussions and kind of the the position that i've taken on this is that most of our systems it, it really, you look at it, any of our systems, whether economic or political, they're all based on this tacit assumption that we don't even realize that we're making in a lot of cases. And that is that the population is going to continue to grow and that economic growth is going to continue to increase. And so every year there's going to be more people and those people are going to have more resources available to them. And certainly the first of those assumptions is at some point in the relatively near future, in the next few decades, virtually no one disagrees that that is no longer going to be the case, right? So that that population is going to peak uh, at some point in the next several decades and begin to decline there. And we don't have any reason to believe that it's going to begin increasing again. So there's, a you know, like, I, like we talked about, there's a discussion around you know, does it stabilize at a lower level or whatever? But I don't, I don't think there's any reason to believe, any compelling reason to believe that we're ever going to go back to that rapid growth model in terms of the global population. And so it, it really puts a lot of stress economically on 
pension systems on you know virtually every economic system and political system is built on this sort of assumption that we're going to have enough younger workers to support the older retirees or the older pensioners. So in some way, shape, or form, whether it's the U.S. Social Security system, the Chinese pension system, uh, virtually every system around the world relies on this idea. Even more traditional systems that rely on families to support older people, there are more older people and fewer uh, younger family members to support them. We're seeing this in China where, you know, you have this situation where grandparents are living longer, parents are living longer, and so you have four grandparents being supported by a, uh, a child and their their spouse, that many of whom don't have any siblings at all. And so they have more older people to support than they do children, which is part of the reason why you have a, a reduction in the fertility rate in, in these Asian countries where they don't have a very strong safety net in terms of government programs, um, but they they do have this traditional family-based system, and even that system is being pressured. So really, no matter what your, your, your system is for dealing with this, it's always built on this assumption that there's going to be plenty of younger workers to support these older retirees, and that is certainly not going to be the case. In fact, we have an rapidly increasing growth in the uh, population 60 plus and even 80 plus and pretty much everywhere in the world outside of Africa the working age population is already declining and that decline is going to be accelerating so you know the, the those two underlying assumptions that I talked about that there's going to be more people uh, on the planet and those people are going to have more resources. The first of those is certainly not going to be true for much longer. And then the second one of those uh, theoretically could be uh, continue to be true. You could see continued economic growth despite a declining population. But if we do achieve that, it's going to be against some pretty strong headwinds in terms of the the demographic shift uh, with the aging population and the declining population. And so we're going to have to get very creative, I think, to uh, to have that come to fruition. So that's that's certainly some some massive challenges. And I don't think there's really any, you know, good answers to that uh, out there right now, whether that's trying to reverse the, the decline in fertility rates. We've seen those policies not be successful um, or whether it's uh, getting creative and coming up with a system that is uh, more amenable to this new reality we're going to be transitioning into. At a very minimum, we need to be having that discussion now because those changes are going to be uh, massive. Yeah. And the, the sort of the central contention is that this is especially relevant to the commodities markets. You know, in the future, an individual might be able to consume more data or more whatever it might be. But in the big things that drive commodity markets, energy, arguably, that's the one that could survive this. But certainly in terms of metals and the amount of infrastructure, we're going to have smaller cities, you know, lots of, you know, we're not going to necessarily see the, the advance of infrastructure and so forth that would be needed. And then crucially as well, I guess, and this is how you came to this discussion, is talking about the the ag space where we really do have an upper calorie limit of how much we're going to consume. So can you, what does this mean for the commodities world? You're, you're traveling the world talking to organizations on this. Is there any, you know, how how deep is the understanding about this and, and what does it mean for commodities? I think uh, people are becoming uh, aware of the issue, and, and really, I've become a bit of an evangelist with a handful of others that are that are really just out there trying to talk about awareness of the issue. You know, we 
in the agriculture industry, we're just coming off of what is arguably one of the biggest accomplishments in human history. And that is the fact that in a span of less than 200 years, we went from less than a billion people to 8 billion people, and we managed to feed everybody. And, and, and the agriculture industry is very proud of that accomplishment, and as they should be. I'm proud of my the small role that I played in that that process. But what that has driven is this this almost an ideology around, you know, we need to produce more and more. And so I see a lot of times these messages that are that are still out there where we talk about we're going to have to produce more food in the next 40 years than we have in the last 10,000 combined, which I completely debunked. Not true, but you know, it's this drive towards, you know, production that we need the, the scarcity mindset we need to produce more and more and more and all of our systems are, are are built around that and it's a unique problem in agriculture because like you mentioned there there is a sort of a cap on how much we can consume now obviously especially here in the u.s we're we're pushing that limit but if you think about the just from a caloric standpoint uh, we've really arrived at, at the richest countries in the world here in the U.S. and Canada and, and big chunks of Europe. We've kind of flattened out, right? And so the in terms of the, the calories that are being consumed and then food waste is just a, a completely other issue that kind of complicates things. But we've kind of flattened out. So in the last 20 years in the U.S. and, and, and Canada and many parts of Europe, that that uh, demand for calories has sort of flattened out. And we're starting to see in East Asia that's starting to flatten out. And so that's on a per capita basis. And so there's not there's not an infinite amount of room there to continue to grow demand. And then when you start getting into a declining population, then that can be that can be a real challenge. And so we have to start beginning to prepare. And again, this is not going to happen overnight, but we have to start beginning to prepare for that and have a discussion around what does that mean when we have a lack of this scarcity that that really underlies uh, a lot of our, uh, well, pretty much all of our systems, whether those are the, the, the markets, whether those are, you know, the, the crop insurance programs, you know, all these other agriculture policies and, and really how we've, we've developed. And I think that's going to require a fundamental mindset shift. And we know how challenging those types of transitions are. And so I think I really want to try to encourage the industry to begin to have a dialogue and start discussing these issues and kind of transitioning away from this more and more and more model to begin to discuss, you know, what does this look like when we are producing too much or we have the capability of producing too much? Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, I guess, positive to the narrative around, and we've had this on the podcast a few times, how crucial biofuels are going to be to bridge the energy transition. Obviously, this would start leaving up some land to produce those, right? I mean, so there, but, but you're right, I think, in the sense that this isn't a discussion that is really hitting political discourse more broadly. And where we're seeing those pressures already around these entitlement programs uh, in whatever form they are, right? We should all basically assumed on the fact that there's going to be sufficient working population to support the, the the retirees. I guess one country that hasn't come up, and it was sort of getting towards the end, but I think I feel if I don't ask it, I'll get questions on it. Where does India sit in this? 
Yeah, so uh, India is, is, I think it's a bit of a surprise when people look at it. I think their population is expected to peak, I'd have to go back and look for sure, but somewhere around 20, in the 2060s, I believe, is when their population is expected to peak. Uh, their fertility rate has declined quite significantly. There's some regional differences in India, but I believe the last numbers I looked at, they were about 2.3, which puts them at about the global average. And so I think people would be surprised to hear that their fertility rate is just slightly above replacement rate. And we sort of expect that to, to dip below replacement rate in the next few years. And so obviously because of that demographic momentum that we talked about and the fact that it's an enormous population that is now the, the biggest population that most, by most estimates overtook China last year, or possibly even before that. So, you know, certainly there's a lot of, of momentum there, and it'll be a while before we start to see that impact. But current UN projections, again, that I think are, are very conservative, let's say, to say the least, um, have them uh, peaking in the 2060s already. And if the fertility rate continues to decline at a quicker clip than what most people are estimating, which certainly seems plausible at this point, it could be sooner than that. So uh, that's a that's a really interesting piece. And I, there's a couple of other countries I think people would be surprised when we look at those expected population peaks, you know, even in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Bangladesh uh, are a lot earlier than what a lot of people would suspect. So I get that a lot is, yeah, China is probably worse than what they're anticipating, but that's going to be offset by India. And then you go looking into India and you realize that they're certainly in a much better uh, spot demographically than uh, a lot of their neighbors and certainly uh, their neighbors in, in East Asia certainly have some pretty big advantages there. And again, they're going to have some time to to see some other countries go through this transition ahead of time. But uh, they're, they're far from in that, uh, that really safe range where we talk about uh, countries that are going to be you know, peaking in the 2080s or even you know, expected to continue to grow beyond 2100. Uh, they're a long ways away from that. Yeah. Obviously, you spend a lot of your career on the swine industry. I mean, let's just talk about that just briefly before we let you go. You know, how is this going to impact the swine sector? Well, I, th I think, and I've been telling people for a while now, there's a lot of these trends in agriculture that I think for better or worse, the pork industry, I think it's going to be a, a bit of a canary in the coal mine or a bit of a, a early indicator. And so I'm encouraging some, uh, a lot of people that aren't uh, closely following the swine industry, you might want to keep an eye on it because I think for a variety of reasons, we're going to be going through a transition that is not unique and that most other commodities are going to be going through at some point in the future. We're just going to go through it a little faster than some of the others. And sort of the reasons behind that are, are would take would take a while to discuss, but you know one of those is is we look at this uh, transition, uh, the growth areas, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, northern Africa, and the Middle East are heavily Muslim, and so as we see that population growing dramatically, a very significant chunk of that population is going to be Muslim. And, and uh, I'm sure everyone knows that uh, that our product is not particularly popular amongst <laughs> the Muslim population. And so that's going to be a, a kind of a special concern for us. And so we're going to be dealing with some of these issues uh, probably earlier than others, certainly others and uh, other meats and, and, and the other commodities. And so I encourage people to take a Kind of take a look at what's going on in, in the pork industry, because I think in a lot of ways that's going to be 
a harbinger of, of the same issues that other commodities are going to be dealing with at some point in the future. Yeah. Well, and I, again, I know how we got connected. You've, you've been giving presentations to various boards in the broader commodities world. Where can people find you and, and your insights? Yeah, so probably the easiest way to, to, to find me would be at uh, toddthurman.me. That's my uh, personal website, um, and that's where I post a lot of my discussions around strategic foresight and around these population changes. Got a blog there called the Ag Futurist. Um, that's the primary goal of of that uh, blog. So it's free. So if you're interested in these issues, would encourage you to subscribe to that. And uh, we go twice a month. We're we're talking about uh, strategic foresight and and demographic and population trends, specifically in the agriculture context. And then uh, my company is Swine Insights International. So that's Swine Insights. Dot com. I find some information uh, on me there. And then I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, so that's a, a fairly easy place to, to find me and connect with me and share a lot of this uh, type of information on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll put links to those in the show notes. And I normally say at this point, we'll have you back on in a, a year or so and see where things are. But how about we have you back on in 2050? And we'll see where we are then. I, I hope I'm still around. And I hope the uh, I hope the news is much better uh, in 2050. It can get a little bit depressing uh, uh, sharing this news. I always try to end my talks with uh, reasons to be optimi- optimistic. And there's certainly plenty of reasons to be optimistic, um, especially if you're here in the US. But uh, yeah, it can get a little bit dark. But, uh, you know, really, I think that's that's what I'm trying to share here is that, you know, it, the, the earlier we begin to have these discussions and begin to explore different uh, opportunities, the easier this transition is going to be. And the, the longer we wait, uh, the more painful that transition is going to be. And it's just human nature that we tend to not be very good at that long term planning we could get good at adapting and not really very good at long-term planning and that's becoming an as as the pace of change kind of picks up that's becoming an increasingly uh, big disadvantage uh, you know that was probably not a problem at all from an evolutionary perspective but as the pace of change picks up it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem for us so we really i think have to get better at, at spending more time in the future and understanding what these changes are going to be bringing and trying to get out ahead of some of these uh, challenges and at least begin to have this, you know, a discussion around that, how to have a dialogue around this issue. So that's really my goal here is to try to uh, stimulate the industry to begin this uh, dialogue and have some discussions. We've got a lot of innovation in our in our uh, agriculture industry, and I just want to tap into that uh, innovation and begin to begin to be, at least be in, begin to develop uh, some solutions for these challenges that are going to be coming at us a lot quicker than a lot of people think. Yeah, well, thank you. And hopefully this is part of bringing that awareness. So, well, thanks, Todd. It's been really fun having you on. And as you say, slightly depressing, but uh, (laughs) thanks for coming on. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. It's, uh, It's been great. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.